Well, it's uh, an interesting day for me, a very special day. Not only is it Mother's Day, but today, immediately following the service, I will be off to um, this exciting adventure of a graduation. For me, it's a double dose of honoring day. Not only honoring my wife as a mother and my mother, but honoring also my daughter for her accomplishment in graduating uh, from the U of M. And the reason I bring this up is because graduation is one of those many rites of passage we have in our culture. Sometimes we hear, you know, we don't have these rites of passage built into our culture like they used to years ago when a a boy would become a man and and a girl would become a woman. But we really do have our own rites of passage, and graduation is one of them. In fact, I'm guessing a number of you will be celebrating graduations this spring of either a child or, or of a, a friend, a relative. How many are going to be celebrating someone's graduation this spring? Okay, so many of you are in, involved in this rite of passage. It's a rite of passage from one life to another, graduation is. From high school living with parents to college and living on your own. From college often living off your parents to a career of living on your own. Unless they come back to the nest, correct? And for some of you who have put yourselves through college, I realize that's kind of a joke. Um, But we have these rites of passage and we have a number of other rites of passage. One of them is is getting your driver's license. You remember the, the day you waited and you were, you were longing to get that driver's license? How many of you that remember that? I do. I remember um, waiting for that day because it, it allowed for me to have this new kind of freedom and this power at my fingertips. I'm sure many of you mothers dreaded that day. Now your child has a new kind of freedom and a power at their fingertips. Well, rites of passage are are those opportunities to move from one stage to the next stage, to to actually graduate from a kind of life to a new kind of life. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is speaking about. When you look at Galatians chapter 3, as we have looked at that last week, and I talked about the place and the purpose of the law and how important it was, he gets to the end of chapter 3, verses 23 through verse 25, and he says, For this faith came. And I just want to say again, if you, it's so important to understand the place and purpose of the law. And if you get a chance and, and you want to know more, just listen to we on, on our um, iTunes. You can pick up that message. I think it's important to get the understanding behind this. But he says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us. And the word here, put in charge, is the word pedagogue, which is where we get, you know, one who is an educator. But this wasn't an educator. It was more one who got you to your education. In that day, it would be a person, a servant who would be assigned to make sure that your children would get to school like a bus driver. And so in this sense, he says the law was like this one that led you to Christ, that we might be justified by faith through this, he says. Now that faith has come. We're graduating. He says we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Prior to faith, we were children and immature. We were prisoners locked up, he says. We were servants under the supervision of the law, until that day when Christ came and faith was released, we in faith trusted not any longer in what we could do. We we came to an understanding of that and we put our faith in what God did for us. You see, the law was given to reveal our sin, to lead us to a place of our own helplessness and brokenness. 
And it acted in that way as a bus driver. When you came to the sense of your failure, you were at this place at the end of yourself. You then were at a point where you could graduate into looking at God and his work and what he has done for you and begin to experience his grace. Take your eyes off yourself so you could look to God. And he says, now that faith has come, catch this. We, if you are a person who's graduated into faith in that relationship of grace, we don't need the law. The work of the law has been done. We've become, as he says, sons and daughters. We've graduated into this new privilege and right of relationship that comes to being sons and daughters. And we've graduated from the training of the law. When we put our trust in Jesus and begin to rely on his work and not trust in ourselves and our efforts, he basically is saying we've graduated, we've come of age spiritually. It marks the most dramatic rite of passage that a person will ever experience. Far greater than getting your driver's license or graduating from a high school or a college or from some graduate school or from whatever kind of rite of passage it is, there's nothing like this rite of passage where you move to a place where you are imprisoned to a place of freedom. You've moved, in a sense, from immaturity to maturity. He says, you have left the ABCs of religious performance to the mature faith in God's performance. You've left the ABCs of reading the simple do's and don'ts of faith to the ability to enjoy the great classics of faith. The works of God with regard to His grace and His mercy and His love and patience and all those good things that are a result of His work towards us. Paul made it clear in the previous verses that the law was not given to give life and to save us, but to reveal sin and bring us to the end of ourself, to lead us to Jesus. And the law is a servant, always a servant to the promise of God's provision of grace. It's a tutor and a guide given with the express purpose to prepare us to graduate. And he's basically saying every person who comes to the end of themselves, who whatever, whether it's through the law and your inability to perform and this understanding that you can never measure up into this point of, of this sense of I can't, you know, you just wonder, will I ever be good enough? Could I ever be good enough? God brings you to this place or even through your own efforts of trying to find life. Whether it's through your job or whether it's through a relationship or through your kids or wherever you try and find life. God says when you come to the point where you find out that it doesn't give life, you are ready to spiritually mature into a new place of graduation. People come to this brokenness, to this place of the end of themselves, some through the law, some through the things they're looking for. They come in different ways and God's just so ready to wait to graduate them into the grace that would give them life. I was reading in the book, it's called Breaking the Slump. NBC reporter, sports reporter Jimmy Roberts, he takes the reader inside the minds of golf greats. And it's as one um, commentator, reviewer writes, it's as hideous and fascinating a tour of anguished psyches as you will find outside of a medical library. Roberts interviews 17 pros, including Jack Nicholas, all the way to Greg Norman. And he interviews them about their darkest moments in golf. The most powerful chapter is one on David Duvall and his fall from greatness. Some of you who have you know, watched and are enthusiasts of golf will know that David Duvall at one time was number one in 1999 as a golfer. Today he's currently 834. And people have been mystified and wondered about, through these years, of his decline. How did it happen? What's up? 
And Newsweek writer David Noonan writes, the blood chills when Duval, not yet 30, having just won the 2001 British Open, he's just won it, he's, people are just celebrating all around him. And Duval turns to a friend and says, I would have thought it would feel better than this. It was his 13th tour title in five years and his last. And Jesus was kind of saying over this man, blessed are the poor. Those who come to the sense of bankruptcy, recognize that through their own efforts, you will never get the life that you want, the intimacy that you would need through a relationship with God that empowers you to overcome your sin and to walk into new life. There is a great opportunity here. Blessed are the poor. Those who come to the end of themselves, they recognize the one school, the only school where failure gets you a diploma. It dreaded F. God allows for us to come to that place of David Duvall where he recognizes, I thought it would be life. And it isn't in the great opportunity at that moment to graduate into a place of faith and trust where the life of God is released through grace. You may be at that place today. It may be through the loss of a job. It may be through the, the uh, difficulty of a marriage situation. It may be that some of the things that have been happening in your life, it could be an illness. It could be a number of things. It could be a David Duvall experience where you've been successful and you've come to the top and you're wondering and you said, I thought it would be more. You have a great opportunity this morning to hear an incredible message that at that point where you, in a sense, in your heart feel this F that it's failed, that whatever around me didn't give and provide and I can't do it on my own. You have the opportunity to know there's a God who's done it for you and is wanting to be in relationship with you. Hallelujah. And so, graduation day, coming of age spiritually, Paul brings them to this point. He says this is what the law was preparing you for, was to graduate into faith, into ever deeper understandings of this God who loves you. And by faith, he says, by recognition of coming to the end of yourself, you are now, when you come to this place, no longer a slave to these, these things that have had you enslaved, no longer a servant to these things that you thought you could get life from. You are now a son and daughter where you share life with God in a way that you never dreamed possible. And so the very first thing he makes clear is he talks about the privileges that come as a result of this graduation. Look at, if you would, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. There are three words here that Paul uses that are, are words for an initiation or a rite of passage. You were, or you are all sons and daughters of God. Here's the first one, through faith. He's just talked about that. Not through your works, not through your efforts, not through your behavior, but through faith in Jesus alone. That's graduation day when you come to that. For all of you, where then he gives another one, we're baptized, another initiation, into Christ, and have clothed, another initiation, yourself with Christ. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Faith. 
The first initiation, right? It's the one that talks about the change that takes place in your life. When you put your confidence and your trust in what God has done for you, believe that Jesus on the cross has taken your sin and your punishment and the condemnation, and through the cross, He has forgiven you completely. He has saved you from a life of selfishness that choice after choice leads you to hell, to a life that now, as it turns, as you open your heart to Him by faith and believe in His grace and mercy, leads you into an ever greater understanding of His kingdom of heaven now and forever, for eternity. Baptism. Baptism is not something you do that saves you. The reason he includes it here is because he says this internal thing that's happened in your life when you by faith trust Jesus and the Spirit of God is given to you and you walk in this newness. Now there is this thing that that in the Jewish day when Jesus lived prior to Jesus doing that baptism in the Jordan, it was a Jewish rite. That when a person who was a pagan was coming into the Jewish faith, they would be baptized, washed from their old ways of life into a new way of life with God through this faith of Judaism. Jesus comes and he takes this very same thing and he says to a whole group of Jewish people, he takes their very ceremony and he turns it on their head and he basically says, you children of God who think you're okay with God because you grew up in the faith and you you are a father of Abraham. You are the ones that need to repent. You need to turn. You need a new way of life because you need to understand. This whole age has been being prepared for you and so he baptizes them in the Jordan and then the Christian faith, the church, takes this baptism ceremony and talks about the fact that when a person has this experience where they trust in God and have this experience with this living God, there is this change that takes place and baptism is the proclamation. It's the telling to everybody that according to what they would do, that you would be placed in the waters like death, like buried in your, and you recognize your sin and that old way of life. You, you don't want it any longer. And now as you are being brought out, you're being washed clean, you're completely forgiven, and you are raised in the new life that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have that life and that power now living in you, and you are a new creation. And then he goes on and he talks about another one, clothed. We don't quite understand this idea of being clothed, but if you were one that Paul was writing to, especially one who was not a Jew, you would understand this. The Roman practice was called toga virilis. Get the word toga, clothing. Virilis, the idea of virile, strong. It was similar to a Jewish bar mitzvah. In that Roman culture, somewhere between the ages of 14 and 17, a boy would reach manhood. And at that time, they would have this toga virilis ceremony. And at that age, they would be a a child who would be, in a sense, established so that they were now fully a Roman with all the rights and privileges that come with being a Roman citizen. They were clothed into this new life with all its privileges. And in the same way, there's a, uh, the same thing was happening in these Greek mystery religions in that day and age. It was the same word is used for coming of age in some of these other faiths. Initiates would dress in the costume and mask of a god. They would put on that mask and the costume of a god that they wanted to identify with. And they would, in a sense, through this ceremony, be proclaimed a man who would now have the characteristics of this god. And and so what Paul is basically saying is you have graduated because of faith and this baptism, which is a sign. And then as a result of being clothed, you are now taking on the characteristics and all the privileges and rights that come from being like Christ and in Christ. And so coming to God through faith in Jesus is like coming to spiritual maturity. Receiving grace with all its promises is like inheriting the wealth of 
a father who has put a trust together for you. And so if you read again, verses 26 to 29, you see Paul's main point after he has given those initiation words. He says he lists some of the privileges and rights that every initiate who comes to this graduation receives. Here's what you get when you get the diploma. Here's what you enjoy after you have graduated from the ABCs of whatever that is in your life. And now you get to enjoy this. Here it is. First, you have a new relationship with God. Verses 26 and 27. You are all sons and daughters of God as a result of belief, not behavior. Because of what Jesus has done, you can approach God with incredible confidence of a child to a parent. I remember when I was a child, my dad was a pastor at Crystal Free, which is now called New Hope Church. And uh, I remember as a child, he would, after a service like this, he would have a lot of people around him and they would be talking to him. And I remember as a little kid, I'd kind of wait for a second and then I just had no patience and still don't today. But um, I would just weave my way through the legs, get next to his leg, grab his leg, and then I would feel this hand upon my shoulders. And I can still feel it today. It felt affirming. I was his. And there's that sense that what Paul is saying is a result of this new relationship that comes through faith. You have the ability through no matter what's happening in life. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to do all these kind of things. You don't have to come to church for about six weeks. You don't have to in any way through your efforts. You can because of what God has done through his grace. You are a son and a daughter. You have the privilege. You have the right to weave your way through all the circumstances of life. Go right to the leg of your father in heaven. And he puts his hand on you and he says, I love you. I'm with you. And some of you need to hear that this morning. You need to know that with the things that have gone on and the things that are going on with your life, you have a new relationship with God. And it's not based on, on how you feel about God. It's not based on what you think He thinks about you. It's based on the very fact that has been made known through this idea of Jesus who has, been, who has come in flesh to express to us the love of God that on that cross He has taken all your sin and you are completely forgiven, completely restored. You are His child. You are adopted into His family. And you can run to him and you can feel the presence of his hand on your shoulder right now he loves you not only do you have a new relationship with god and you're not responsible for getting god to love you wouldn't it be horrible my daughter's here and wouldn't it be horrible if you had to have certain grade point average a magna cum laude or some kind of thing for me to, to love you to say that i love you the love that you want and you want to experience as a person to another person is one that is built on grace and trust right and God does not sit there and say, if you do this, this, and this, then I will love you. He always says, I love you. And as I love you, comes into my presence and I will fill you with my presence. And why would I, I would never expect to do that to my children, although because we're human, we do those kind of things from time to time because we've had that in our family. That's what sin is all about. This is what generational stuff is all about, that God has come to break. But if we wouldn't want that in no way would God want you to have to relate to him as in some way you had to give him a report card. And, you, and, and the problem with this is you never know. You never know if you've been good enough. In life, you never know if you get straight A's. In reality, as the Bible tells us, you never will. We will all, because of the law, come to failure. We will all, like David Duvall's, find that life isn't in the thing that we're pursuing. It is only in God. And when we come in a place where we're on our knees in humble dependence and cry out and say, God... Would you love me? And he says, oh, I've loved you from eternity past. And I made it known through Jesus. It's not only a new relationship that we have with God, but we have a new relationship with each other. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he makes a standpoint. He says, not only your sons and daughters, but your brothers and sisters. Good brothers and sisters, you know what I mean? Brothers and sisters who can relate to each other as being a part of one family. So that he writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor f- or free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. They would understand those words, especially a Jewish person in that day. The three examples he uses are incredibly profound. They relate especially to the life of a Jew. Because if you were a Jew, and you were a free person, and you were a male, you were on the top of the pecking order of all of life and culture in their eyes. You were superior. You were more blessed by God. Think about that. Just imagine if it was in the same way. If you were a part of an evangelical church, and you are a Free person who has a job and you are a male, you should feel like you're on the top of God's list. God's saying, not at all. In fact, a good Jew would pray this prayer when they would get up in the morning. And it's almost like, you know, our common prayers. It was a very common prayer. Like we have a common graces that you say before a meal, right? Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Yesu nam specific. Those are Norwegian or in Swedish. I just mumble the words out when I'm at my Norwegian parents' in-laws. Or good, Lord, good food, good meat, come on, Lord, let's eat. Um, no, I'm just kidding. They would say this prayer. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Moms, isn't that horrible? When we have been designed and created in the image of God, who is both male and female, living in patriarchal cultures, when God is saying, I am male and female, and he wants to bless the differences, and he wants us to celebrate those differences. Not that he says he doesn't obliterate them or not acknowledge them, but he says those differences are superficial in the eyes of God. Because all people matter to God, no matter what their differences are. God has no favor. It matters not if you are an apostle or you are an alcoholic. If you are religiously responsive or rebellious. If you are a saint or a sinner. God's favor is based on his love through Jesus Christ, not on what's in your heart. And he says, come the way you are. Over the last number of Months I've had people come and some of them said, you know, I really get what you're saying. I know this. I'm beginning to understand this message of grace, this message of brokenness, this message that says that we're all to come together around. Around Jesus. There are no favorites. There are no better because of behavior or the way you dress or the things you do. It's not about that. It's about what's in God's heart and his love. I'm so haunted. I remember. Early on when I came here um, doing a message, and one of the illustrations that I had read, one of the things I had read was about William Booth and the Salvation Army. I'm still haunted. It comes up to me every once in a while when I'm preparing messages, and I get this, this picture of William Booth who had this heart desire for people to come to know God, for people who are in the down and out, who are living in the slums and their streets, and they were um, those who were, the, in that sense, the most degraded lives as they were homeless and they, 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 they reeked. 
And he would come and these people were hungry. They wanted just water. They wanted food. They, they wanted these things. And, and Booth would come and he shared with them about this incredible hope, about this relationship that would come through Jesus Christ and, and through the fact that he took them right where they're at. They didn't, they, just the way they were, that's how God saw them and loved them. And, and these people began to respond to that. And people began to have this new life going into their soul through the Holy Spirit. And they were given the power to become this new person as they were becoming new people. He began to gather a group of these kind of people around him. And at one point he had hundreds and they were looking for a church that would accept them. He didn't want to start his own church. It wasn't about starting the Salvation Army and having a, a group of Boothites. He really wanted to bring them into the church, but he went into churches like this. And when he would bring in about 50 to 100 of these people, they were, they were asked to leave because they weren't like us. We may not have hundreds that come in, but we sometimes have one, two, three, four, and they come in and they don't feel accepted. They don't feel as if they're valued for who they are with what they're showing up in their heart. And the moment we do that, we're no different. And that's what, that's what he's saying. Not only do you have a new relationship to your sons and daughters with God, the Father, you are now also brothers and sisters in every way. Not based on your behavior, not based on the way you dress, not based on these superficial things, but on one essential truth that we are all sinners saved by God, standing at the cross at this equal level, and God's favor is on anyone who will just stand there and receive it. And He accepts their differences, and they're so freeing when we begin to understand this incredible love of God that gives His grace. I remember reading in Swindoll's book, I believe it's called Grace Awakening, he quotes Gladys Hunt, who writes in an Eternity magazine these words. Acceptance means you are valuable just as you are. This will be the test of whether we really are in grace. Acceptance means you are valuable just as you are. It allows you to be the real you. You aren't forced into someone else's idea of who you really are. It means your ideas are taken seriously since they reflect you. You can talk about how you feel inside and why you feel that way. And as you do, someone really cares. Acceptance means... Swindoll quotes of this woman. You can try out your ideas without being shot down. You can express, catch this, heretical thoughts and discuss them with intelligent questioning. You're actually, because there's people here who are coming with these things inside them and they feel they've got to cover them up and they can't get real with the people who can help them. Who are they going to go to? So they come and they begin to share and they say, I'm even thinking about these things. And, and they begin to share and, it's, and, and the person says, that person brings these thoughts and discusses them with intelligent questioning with, with those around them because you feel safe. No one will pronounce judgment on you. It doesn't mean you will never be corrected or shown to be wrong. It simply means it's safe to be you and no one will destroy you out of prejudice or as the word means out of pre-judgment. And there's a third relationship. He says, I want you to walk into these privileges. You have a new relationship with history, a new genealogy, a new godly pedigree. Because in that day, a lineage was really, really important. Because you would look at your line and you would keep track of the lines throughout history. And that lineage meant something. And, and, and some people came from some horrible lineages. And they, they felt completely separated from their culture. And so he, Paul just makes this little phrase right at the end of verse 29. He says, if you belong to Christ, here's some good news, here's a privilege, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. 
All the major religions look back to who? Abraham, because of the faith of Abraham. He basically is saying to you and to me, he says, step out of your tent like he did to Abraham. That promise that was given to God is based on faith. And if you will step out of your tent of existence, in a sense, and look to this God who is who is promised to give you the things in your heart. And by that, I mean the, the pure things that come from God. As you begin to look to him and you you bring those before God and he he purifies those further. God promises to meet and to fulfill these things within your life. And he says, like Abraham, look at the stars, look at the sand. There's all kinds of them. And Abraham's thinking, I know you said this to me, God, but I'm getting up there in years. I'm getting really old. And God is going is, is he's aging. He's going great. And he says, but God, I'm at the point where I can't even make this happen. And God goes, exactly. You're right where I want you. F on your ability. Today you can graduate. And he says anyone who has that kind of faith stands in that line. They're, they're actually children in this lineage. And then he ends with these verses and he says, now I want you to enjoy what you have been given. I think it's interesting because Paul has told them about this new relationship. He's at this point as he's writing. And in his mind, I simply think he's thinking, Shoot, I've told them all about these things, but now I'm afraid that they may know about it in their head, but it isn't going to drop down to their heart. They're not going to enjoy it. Isn't the 18 inches between your head and your heart a long distance? How many of you have heard these things, but how many of you actually know it deep in your heart? I am constantly, ask my wife, constantly, Learning and hearing things here and through the the rub of relationship and through the the grace of community, learning as God begins to allow those things to drop from my head down in my heart. And some of you may be at that place. And you know what's really interesting? It so often happens that that as you come to that end of yourself, it's at those times you say, God, I, I know this here, but make it happen here. And he says, thank you. And so Paul's beginning to look at this as he's writing. What's the good of all this if you're not enjoying it? And so he gives another illustration. He says, I fear you will be sons and daughters, brothers and sisters with this great lineage, but you'll live like servants. You won't really enjoy what it means to be in my family, says Paul. So verses one through three, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Verse 1 is basically this. He says, you know what? There's no difference between a person who is a son and a servant. He is so afraid right now that there will be a failure to launch into deeper faith. You're just going to stay servants. And you're going to stay under the law and never move into the enjoyment of God's grace. And so verse 2, Paul changes the idea from one put in charge of pedagogue, that bus driver who leads you to Jesus. And now he changes the, the whole analogy to a guardian and trustee, one who administers an estate so that the trust is given at a certain time. It was set by the father. And the key to this is in verse 3 when he, he uses the word slaves under the basic principles of the world. In the early Greek expression, it literally meant elementary principles or the ABCs of something. They were the building blocks. And he's referring, if he's referring to the law, he's referring to these guardian and trustees. If the law was like the bus driver that brought you to a place of your understanding of your need of God and yet you're a failure, the Judaizers, he was saying, were useful and necessary and they were good. 
as they were ones who administered this to the point when the father gave the estate. But at this point, these guys who are coming to you, they're no good any longer because now the time has been set. You're to move into this graduation of faith and enjoyment of his grace. And these laws and the guardians that he says, these trustees, were to be merely a foundation to hold this until you could get there. In this sense, the ABCs are meant to lead us to the ability to read, right? Think about it. ABCs, you learn about them, and they're building blocks to help you to read words so that when you read words, you can read things in literature, you can read a paper, you can read things that give you more so that you can enjoy life. Can you imagine someone sitting in a library with all these wonderful classics and books and all they've learned throughout their life, the ABCs, the building blocks of the words, but they never read them? That's what Paul's afraid of. And so... Paul is saying the ABCs of mankind trying to do religious things to get God's love, whether it's through the law and coming to the end of your efforts or it's through your own gifts and trying to um, make it happen and find life like David Duvall or whatever your place might be. All these things were designed to lead you to getting your diploma in faith. God intended the law to reveal sin and drive us to hope in Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to finding forgiveness and grace. Satan uses it as your final step to your condemnation. God meant the law as a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a dead end, deceiving us to think that there is no hope and no escape from the fearful bondage of the sin we're in. And you may be there. And God says, if you're there this morning... This is the day where the truth should begin to move into your heart. God wants to, whatever it is in your life right now, to begin to remove the separation and drop this truth into the reality of your living. Because Paul fears that you and I will miss the gospel, which is the good news of what God has done. And because he's afraid of that, he begins to focus once again on God. That's what verses 4 through 7 is. He says, he paints this picture of this attentive, Caring, nurturing, the female attributes of this God who is, who is watching history and preparing history, bringing it to a point like a father who sets the date of the will. And he's preparing and he's nurturing that. Plus, you know what? He's been preparing and nurturing your life. He's been attentive to you throughout every moment of your day. And so God... He says, I want you to realize what God has done. He says in verse four, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Since you are a son, God has made you an inheritor. And all this is about God's nurturing, attentive care. I realize there are many of you moms who are attentive to your children's needs. But Paul says, look at God. That's why in verse 4 he says, but. As a way of grabbing your attention, he says, stop, look, and see the incredible love of God and all that he has done in your behalf. He says, first, he set the time. Like parents drawing up a will. Second, he says he prepared the time. When the time had fully come, God made, when, when it was right, he sent Jesus. And there's all kinds of things you could read in history about it. Rome had been conquered. There was peace throughout the land. Rome were these incredible engineers who had this extensive road system. 
At that time, the Greek language was a common language, just like our English language. The people um, could communicate. So all these things were prepared. The time had fully come. God is as attentive God throughout history is bringing people to this place, not only as individuals, but as a whole world, bringing us to a place where when Jesus would come, all the message would be able to spread because of the peace in the land, the language in the land, the extensive uh, road systems. And then there was also this great expectation. There was this point where all the world had become like David Duvall's. And, and we're just saying, this is it. I've been serving this and this is all. And then he says, God then even does the work. He kept his promise. He sent his son to redeem, to bring freedom from condemnation, guilt and shame, to bring complete forgiveness. And then I just want you to note this as we close. He continues to do the work. Verses four and six, you have to note the parallel. God sent his son. And then in verse six, God sent the spirit of his son. The idea is this, the very first sign of life. You know, when you take a baby and, and they, they're born, one of the first things they do is they cry out. It shows life. There's almost the same sense. The moment the person comes to that place and they put their faith and they trust in God, the spirit comes into their heart. And in the same way, with these with these brand new lungs of spiritual life, we cry out a new word, which is Abba, which means daddy, which means father, which is this sense of closeness and intimacy and relationship that comes through God so that all these other things seem just superficial. And he says, this is ours in God. And so how do you enjoy it? Verse five is just critical. He says, if you want to enjoy this, you might. He says all these things. He redeems and he does all these things that we might receive these full rights. And the word might is is critical because it, it gives the idea that it's not just about hearing, but it's about acting in your will to claim it for you. So I want you to think for a second. Is there something that you need to claim this morning for you, that God has for you, that is an act of faith, that is not about your work, but it's about trusting that what God has said would be true. You know, God wants you to live in this attentive love and care. And when we begin to pay attention to people like like Paul's described here, the way God pays attention to us, you begin to experience the love of God. God pays such close attention to you. Do you know that he says even the hairs on your head are numbered? That's what Jesus said. In fact, many of you think about it, especially women. Don't you take it that if if you have like a haircut or a new hairstyle, don't you just take it as a sign of love when someone pays attention to that? Right? Well, that's what he's kind of saying. God has numbered every hair on our head. If one falls out, he notices it. Now, he may not replace it, unfortunately, but he notices it. And God notices things your mother has never thought about. And we all know how moms pay great attention, right? We almost feel like they have eyes on the back of their head. That's why every athlete, when they're standing in front of the camera, they stand in front of the camera and they've done something good. What are they? they don't go, hi, Dad, right? It's hi, Mom. I want to share with you that God notices. He knows you right now. He pays attention. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing in just a moment. Um, and if the team would come, as you would stand.
I want to challenge you to think about this because what Paul has been talking about through this whole thing is is graduating into a faith and an understanding of this incredible love of God that has paid attention throughout history to bring you into the places of privilege. And I want you to know that God notices you right now. And one of the greatest works that you can do if you want to be like God in this is to notice someone. See, when you pay attention to someone, you basically are saying you are the most important thing in the world right now. I think that's why moms, you know, get that response. And so Paul is basically saying he's challenging us to have the heart of God, the heart of a mom that says, I see you. I notice you.